This is about now not faulting yourself for who you are, but becoming aware of who you aren't so you can become what you can be. Bill Wilson, co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, wrote in 1952, if we examine every disturbance we have, great or small, we will find at the root some unhealthy dependence and its consequent demand. Wilson suggested that if we could identify and continually surrender these unrealistic and unrealizable demands, that we may then be able to accomplish what he imagined to be the recovery's next frontier, something he called emotional sobriety. Flash forward 70 years and join psychotherapists and best-selling authors Tom Rutledge and Dr. Alan Berger, who have taken up the mantle of exploring Bill Wilson's new frontier. Welcome to Emotional Sobriety. Welcome back to Emotional Sobriety, the podcast. I'm Tom Rutledge, and with me is uh, Dr. Alan Berger. Hey, Alan, and uh, our uh, our illustrious uh, producer, Patrick Newman. How are you doing, Patrick? Oh, I'm doing well. Uh, happy Halloween, everybody. Uh, you'll be getting this episode by uh, trick or treat time tonight. That's right. That's good. So and we're and we're and we're we're talking. We're we're well, are we going to give them a trick or treat today, Tom. What are we going to do? Uh, let's give them a treat. Because uh, because well, I got a deck of cards here, but I don't know if that's going to come off on a podcast very well. It's, it's like funny, uh, it's, a trick trick is kind of old school, right? Like all the, there are all these presents in my parents' generation that was just like bag of coal or a uh, punch in the face, uh, you know, uh-huh. like yeah, yeah. We we, we literally we, a bag of coal. They handed kids out a bag of coal. Well, well if was, they were really good. It was mostly just a lump, you know. If you're yeah. really good, you get a bag. Yeah, mostly for 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 us Halloween when I was a young man it was was just vandalism. We just went out and be, became vandals that day. So it was okay to to just destroy other people's property on that night. So, oh God, I did so much of that. <laughs> I smashed so many pumpkins and people. And now I appreciate the time it takes to really carve a pumpkin. Oh, those that's that's uh, true art. You know, I mean, that, that, we're that, talking that, about making amends in nine. You know how many pumpkin amends I need to make. <laughs> So we're making some serious progress through your book here, buddy. Are we starting on chapter nine today? Yeah, we're on nine today. Living life on life's terms. Life's terms. Like we have any other choice, right? Well, that's the, that is the challenge, isn't it? I mean, we the, that's the illusion we create. Yeah. I guess it's best yeah. to describe it that way is we create this illusion like we do have a choice. And then we, we start to scream when it doesn't. When reality doesn't match our illusion or our demands, right. I mean, it really is a, you know, it's it is a real stage and a step towards our maturity to get to the point where we can deal with life on life's terms. Yes, it's you know I'm 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 re I'm rereading uh, um, Victor Frankl's um, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Now, and now I say I'm rereading it. I'm I've done something. I've done I've read it a couple of times. I'm listening to it on Audible now, yeah. and it's like listening to. Of course, it's not his voice, but but the man who who reads this is is phenomenal. And to read the first part of that book, I'd forgotten how heart and it is uh, to me. It's more heart wrenching to listen to it because it is description yeah. of of prison camps and and uh, and then. But but I've just uh, just as I was driving here to, to running late to meet you guys. I was listening to the very last part of the of the first section. First part one, where this Victor Frankel says, uh, certainly, certainly apropos to what we're talking about here, living life on life's terms, 
it's like he he says some of the most wise things I you know that I can I can't even imagine. It's like it's it's like there's you know nothing nothing us shatteringly new we've never heard before. But but he is he is such a magnificent communicator. And for him to and to do that, I'm going to I'm going to be going back and getting my print book out and be re underlining things. But it's like it is just that to bring it home to what we're talking about here. It is it is ultimately the serenity prayer. What can we change and what can we not? And let's change the things we can. And that's what living on life's terms is. Well, listen, he had that one section in, in the part that you're just talking about where he says and I'm paraphrasing it. Mm-hmm. And it sounded like they were holding an AA meeting in in the death camp, right? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I just listened to that part. He goes, we had to teach ourselves and we had to teach the other despairing men that it really did not matter what we expected from life. Mm -hmm. But rather to see ourselves as those who were being challenged by life and that the meaning and purpose in our life was to meet the challenges that life, or he says, the tasks that yes. life set before us. Literally, what is life expecting of me, or what is life challenging me with in, in this in this moment? And it's I like, mean, what a brilliant! I mean, for them to be able to, well, for him to be able to to see the incredible wisdom of that under the dire mm-hmm. circumstances that he and the other men that mm-hmm. were facing in his mm-hmm. world. It's it's remarkable. I mean, it really is a remarkable insight. That's the place I go back to what I'm talking about. This book anyway is is it's not when you're asking what is the meaning of of life. It is rather you who is being asked the question, because to say what is the meaning of my life? We 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 think of that as a proactive thing. But it also it also implies that there's some book, there's some book with the back of the book where there, there's an answer that whether I'm going to get it right or not, instead of the fact it's it's like it's up to me. Yeah, it's it's right. like this is this is not this is not a short answer test. This is this 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 is a, this is an essay, you know, and, you, you know, what do you want? What do you what do you want the meaning of your life to be? But let's shorten that down for the sake of what we're talking about today. What do I what do I want the meaning of today be, to be? What do I want? What do I want to matter? How do I want to matter today? And, and um, yeah, how do I you know, how, how do I how do I want to meet life's challenges today? Well, it brings up that conflict between um, claiming an experience or being claimed by it. And I think in Frankel's mm-hmm. book, um, mm-hmm. it really makes it overt that like, there's just no other choice. Like, you know, if you, if you don't claim that experience of, of being in that place, then um, game over. And I think well, that's, that's when we become yeah. the victim that, that is, that's it. Tom was saying it's at that very moment that we lose our center of gravity and we become a victim of the circumstances we're in. And we don't realize that 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 being a victim is not caused by what's happening, but by our relationship to what's happening. Right. And that, that insight is so critical here to this whole thing of emotional sobriety. I mean, it is so critical. Well, victim, the way, the, you know, the way we've done, we've talked about this probably even recently on the podcast is that to me, the definition of, of victim, you know, victim, the word victim has such a, has such a, a, a lot of baggage that goes with it. And it, it feels, if, if you use it, it feels all, almost instantly like an insult to people. And, and, you know, I always tell people, we're not, ta- I'm not talking about 
you know, being a martyr or whiner or all that stuff. I'm not talking about, you know, I've been that. I know people who've been that way. I come from a family of lots of those. It's, it's like um, what we're talking about is something pretty, pretty straightforward. Victim thinking is believing like what you just said, Alan. Victim thinking is, is believing that how I am doing at any given moment is determined by what happens to me in my life. Every time we catch ourselves in that victim thinking, how do I get myself back to the to the understanding that how I am doing and even who I am is determined by how I respond to what is happening? And that's that's what Frankel's saying. That's what that's what that's that's what chapter nine says. Well, the word it victim, is, it's not uh, I don't think of it as like a moral judgment on uh, someone who's suffering. Right. Because right. Any, anybody, uh, you know, you look at. uh people huddled in the concentration camp, they are being victimized, you know, they are mm-hmm. being br- brutalized. And, um, but I think it's just delineating, you know, claiming it versus being claimed. It's um, right. We're, we're not saying things don't happen to people. You know, right. It's, it's more uh, of a yeah. frame of mind to escape certain, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, traumas, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, to quote from Alan Berger, for most of us, letting go of our expectations, both the obvious and the hidden, will be the greatest challenge in the quest for our emotional sobriety. Letting go of those expectations is what we're talking about. It's right. like and and recognize and we don't recognize we have the expectations until we actually tune into our own distress. Yeah. You know, this is this is one of the, the, the clearest things that I've learned specifically from from working with you, Alan, is. Is when I, you know, I love questions. Questions are the greatest tools in the world. I think to take us places inside ourselves to find answers. The when I am feeling distressed, I, I say this to clients all the time. I, 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 I credit you with this. When I am feeling distressed, I ask the question: What unrealistic expectations? Am I having not? Am I having an unrealistic expectation? Yeah, what right. unrealistic expectations yeah. am I having? And and I allow that. And that's one of those questions. It's a magnet question. It's like I can ask it more than once and get different answers. Yeah. And that's fine. There, it's all work. Draw that in so that I can. And that's what we're talking about. Living life on life's terms, being a non-victim, living as a non-victim. Yes. No, that's right on it. See, Patrick, I was going to 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 echo what you just said it doesn't mean that things don't happen to us that victimize us right. you know if you're in the path of a hurricane you're a victim of that hurricane right. you didn't cause that reality now how you deal with the fact that you've been victimized becomes where our power lies mm-hmm. and that's the other brilliant thing that frankel said you know that there's that space between a stimulus mm-hmm. like what's happening yeah. Yeah. and our response to that and he says, try to live in that space. It's in that space you're going to find your power. You're going to find your, your ability to choose. And in your choices becomes your, your potential for growth and for your development. And so, you know, we don't, and please don't ever hear us saying that there aren't victims. There are a lot of victims. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's terrible, you know, the things that happen and that the things that we have to face. Um. But as Frankel points out, we don't have to let the situation we're facing define us. We can respond to that in a way and walk away from the worst, most horrendous things in the world. And as he says, not only survive it, but thrive from it. Mm -hmm. That we can discover parts of ourselves that we didn't even know we had. Right. 
Right. I like the joke. I, you know, it, it didn't kill his body or his spirit. And um, he was able to joke about it. I like the part in the book where he's at a restaurant with a friend of his who's another survivor of the camps. And they make the joke about, you know, uh, the waiter serving them soup. And he's just like, well, scoop from the bottom because yes. uh, that's where all the good <laughs> stuff is. And uh, man, I don't know. My, just ringing uh, a very funny joke out of the most dire, you know, depressing yeah. scenario you can imagine. That's power. Yeah, absolutely. It does occur to me as I was walking out from my car to, to the house that that your chapter here and, and really lines up with what Frankel is teaching. Oh, very much so. I yeah. listen. He's been an inspiration of mine. And, you know, in my quest for understanding emotional sobriety more, you know, as you know, I turn to a lot of different sources. Mm -hmm. Frankel is is one of the the, the core of those sources mm -hmm, I turn mm -hmm, to because mm -hmm. everything he's talking about to me resonates this emotional sobriety. Oh, absolutely. It's at the heart of emotional sobriety. I mean, he wouldn't use that phrase because he wasn't familiar, but isn't it interesting? Mm -hmm. Is that when he when I think this book was published, was it in the 50s? Um, do you know when when yeah. Frankel's book was published? I think somewhere in that time frame i know it's yeah. sold over probably by now you know 10 million copies oh, oh, it, it, yes i'm certain it has i can't but I, it right I know now. it was published i mean look it grew out of the first half the second half of that book was the manuscript he brought with him into mm -hmm. the concentration camps right that, that he lost and had that he lost and, he had and, to and, memorize and and, and 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 try yeah it had had these little scraps of paper where he had these little little you know notes that would mean nothing to anybody right. else you know where he tried to to, to and i and i and i you know speak i mean and i and i remember when when he when he when he talks about that in the book i remember feeling talking about a victim feeling horrible writing one of my books when when he didn't have auto save on it and and i i wrote i at the end of a chapter i lost the whole chapter and feeling like the world had done me wrong you know <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. talk and about he, talk about a humbling thing. Reading what, yeah, <laughs> I know. Oh no, listen, it's you know what what the man survived is is an inspiration to all of us, especially mm -hmm. with what he's been able to teach us as a result of his survival. Yeah. So he really, I I drew from his work and his inspiration. Mm -hmm. You know, in writing a lot of what I've written about emotional sobriety. And not only Frankel, but there were people like Virginia Satir, mm -hmm. another pioneer in family therapy and self-esteem, Fritz Perls. You know, I quote Dr. Nathaniel mm -hmm. Brandon a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, some other Gestalt therapists, Pol, uh, the pollsters. Pollsters, yeah. You know, I mean, there's just so many people that they were seeing the power of this truth. That who, who, wrote, who, who wrote decision uh, therapy? You, uh, oh, that was the Goldings. That was oh, uh, Goulding God. and Mary Goulding. It, it always gets on my last nerve when when somebody emerges onto on, onto the this in our field, acting like they've discovered something new. Yes. You know, you know, it's like, oh, this is the thing. I've, you know, I now know what the answer is. Like, no, it's, it's, and, and, and the, again, using your terminology, it's, it's looking, looking, look through these lenses. Look at, look at through the lens of emotional sobriety. Part of what I hope we're contributing to educating people about is we always have choices. That's right. We you know? do. We always, and when sometimes they may not be, they may not be obvious. Sometimes you have to sit with them for a while. Mm -hmm. 
And that's the other thing is, is that our society is so focused on immediate gratification. We right, want right. instant results. Make it better right now. Right. Some of the things you're confronting in your life are not going to be made better right now. Right. And so many, some of them are going to be choice. Their choices, you know, externally and their choices intrapersonally. It's like, that's the other thing. That's, and that's a lot of what, what Frank was talking about, but all of this stuff, redecision therapy, it's like, it's, it's about changing, you know, I mean, I mean, this changing your story, changing, changing how you reframing, how you're looking at, at your, at your life and at your story and realize that you're, it's um, I think I actually think Franklin uses the word in this section I was I was just listening to is of a, of attitude a lot choosing you choosing the attitude with which you, you you look at your life. That's right. That's right. Choosing the attitude. So Patrick did some research and it was 1946 that that okay. uh, man's search for meaning was initially published. It's gone through many, many different editions. Um now think wow, about it came that. out. It came out quickly after the war. Then didn't came it? out quickly after quickly. the war. Wow. Now I wonder, and we don't know this, but Bill was writing the twelve and twelve in nineteen fifty, and the twelve and twelve is all about emotional sobriety. The letter he wrote to this fellow out here in California was fifty six, ten years after Frankel's book. You know, yeah, I just start to wonder how did he read it. You know, yeah. did was he influenced by it? Could he see that what he was talking about with the, yeah. you know, these are questions. If Bill was on our podcast, I'd ask him. That's right. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, what 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 inspired you? What helped, you know, what were some of the things that you were reading that that kind of illuminated mm-hmm. this path that you were are taking us on? So it's it's it is interesting. So there was a spirit of the times, you know, that what was happening, people were saying, you know. There's some crazy, terrible things that happen in this world. There is evil in this world. Nobody could deny what Hitler was doing and what his mm-hmm. goal was, and even what was happening in Japan and, and what the goal of those, you know, dictatorships were all involved, those tyrannies and stuff. Okay. And here, out of all of that, comes this man that says, look, it's not what's happening to us. It's how we're dealing with it. Mm-hmm. We got to see ourselves as being challenged by this stuff. Mm-hmm. And what a calling to dealing with life on life's terms. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, it, and it had to be heavy because, look, man, there was a lot of people killed in World War II. Mm-hmm. And so how much grief was there, you know, at that point in the 46? A lot of yeah. people were still suffering that grief mm-hmm. over losing family members, close mm-hmm. ones, partners. Being, you know, being displaced. I mean, the entire you know city's oh destro- destroyed. God. It's like, yeah. It's- Think about that. I mean, across, across, you know, the world, this was a global mm-hmm. experience. It was a world war, right, kind mm-hmm. of a thing. Mm-hmm. I pray to God we never have to face another one. I've been... I don't I say every now and again, I get these, it's the Marine in me. I, I start reading these World War Three books and stuff like that. <laughs> and the scenarios that take place, man, and it's a frightening proposition. I mean, it was bad enough with the weapons of mass destruction we had at this time. Today, it's unbelievable the, the damage that would be what done. We, what could be done, yeah. Uh, it's just so frightening when you stop mm-hmm. to think about it. But you look, you know, the, this is in, in one way, the way I think about it is Bill is really showing us and people like Dr. Frankel 
and all of those other people that were really inspired by this zeitgeist, right, by the spirit of this time, is that the our ability, the human spirit is incredible. It really is. I just yes. keep coming back to that is how under the worst conditions that we can rise up and discover something like he saw mm-hmm. and saw men and and didn't see a lot of women because they were segregated, but mm-hmm. but really, really inspired. Now, I had I lost cousins in the in Auschwitz. So part of my family history is that my grandfather's, so Ned Berger had um, three other brothers. And one of his brothers um, stayed in Europe. They were in Latvia, um, right near the German border. And they had, it was called Burgers Hardware and Bicycles, was the sign on the store. Right. And when uh, Nazis came through, so... My grandfather and two of his brothers, so there's four brothers, three of them came to the United States in the 30s. And they moved to Chicago. And it's so funny. I read these letters. Hey, we got a job. We're going to be working down at the Navy Pier. We're going to make 25 cents. It's going to pay our rent. I love it. (laughs) For a month. I mean, it was these Uh kinds of things. And they were scraping because... You know, look, the, the Great Depression, they were still struggling with that. This was in the 20s, I should say. <laughs> yeah. So his brother was who was thriving over there in Europe said, well, come on back. Come on back. Things are doing well. You guys can come to work. We can do this stuff. And they said, no, we we even though we're struggling here, there's something about America that we really love mm-hmm. and that we like. So my grandfather stayed in Chicago. His two brothers moved out to California. They became jewelers. Down mm-hmm. at the Gold Mart down in Los Angeles, right? Mm-hmm. That's where they mm-hmm. set up shop and became very successful. My grandfather stayed in Chicago and he developed a, a, a sunshade business, right? Mm-hmm. Well, his brother kept writing and writing and then the war broke loose. The Nazis mm-hmm. came to town. Mm-hmm. They took him out of his store. They shot him in front of the store. Mm-hmm. They took his wife and three daughters to Auschwitz. Oh. The, his wife and the oldest daughter were put in the gas chambers. The two younger girls, they kept on the camp. They lived in the camp for over four years. The week before the Americans liberated Auschwitz, the middle daughter passed away from malnutrition. Mm-hmm. And so my cousin Sophie was the only surviving member. And um, she, her story has been recorded. You can go to, you know, University of Southern California has a whole library of interviews with all of these survivors from, from the Holocaust. And she was, she was, she, um, Spielberg did that. That was his job. He gave a bunch of money to the film industry, uh, the uh, 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 film studies. What what is it named? Shoah. Shoah. Yeah, Shoah. And it in a film and they talked about her and she was taken, I believe it was to Austria, put in an orphanage and she fell in love with music and she became an opera singer and she traveled all over Europe singing opera. And the one and what she told me, the one song that she loved to sing, and I can't remember the name of it. It's a piece out of an opera, but it was like, I cannot find my home anymore. Mm. It was a story about somebody being lost and unable to find their home. 
And she said, whenever she sang that, she just cried inside her soul. I mean, it was so heavy. But here's this woman who comes out of that whole experience, you know, and finds her salvation in music. And finds, finds beauty. Yeah, that's right. She found she found it. And um, wow. I got to meet with her and talk with her. It was very hard for her to talk about the Holocaust, um, the level of suffering and pain that she witnessed. She just she kept it over here. She just couldn't keep it close to her. She had to keep it an arm's length away. You know, at times she would open her up to that. And she knew I was a psychologist and she would just say, hey, Alan, it's just <laughs> The pain is so great when I think about what happened and what I saw and stuff. Um, so, you know, it's wow. the, Frankel's message touched very close to home for me, given that, you know, in my family that we lost someone in the Holocaust and into right. the into that whole crazy, crazy scene that was unfolding in Europe. Wow. It's uh, anything that anything that can bring home that how real that was and and you know and and that suffering at that at that level uh is happening everywhere all over the place today it's like it's not this is not that kind, that level of suffering is not a thing of the past it's like it is not um, a thing of the past you know we see it in africa now it's terrible in terms of the mm-hmm. genocide that takes place in other countries too i mean mm-hmm. i mean it's it, it is it is a part of our human nature that is that is quite ugly and evil and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, I had uh, I had the book recommended to me by a therapist uh, years ago. And then and when I was in rehab, uh, we read passages from it. And I think um, part of that was I think at least the ther- my therapist impetus for recommending it was um, I would spend a lot of time on drugs uh, you know, uh, wondering what the meaning of life was or uh, finding, having trouble, yeah. uh, assigning meaning to anything and just mm-hmm. feeling very nihilistic. And, um, I like the Frankel, uh, section that you quote in your book, Alan, um, life ultimately means taking the responsibility to find the right answers to its problems and to fulfill the tasks, which it constantly sets for each individual. So it's, it's not about like, uh, thinking your way towards that meaning. It's about um, kind of rising above your feeling about a particular thing and just kind of taking action. It's using your feelings really. And in one way is that one of the things we're teaching Patrick for people is, is to, if you stay in close contact with your feelings and you approach them with the curiosity that, you know, Tom was talking about earlier, asking the right questions and being curious about it, because curiosity is such an important element in terms of achieving emotional sobriety and say, what's going on here that's got me so upset? What's happening for me? What is underneath this? What is What are the underlying causes of my suffering? And, See, and what can I do? We don't, we don't take time to ask that question. Right. Right. Again, what can I And then when you have that, what can I do with it? It's yes. because it's about making meaning. It isn't about it isn't about trying again. That's that place where we've all been brought up in a world where where we think that, you know, the the meaning of the meaning of our lives is, might be revealed to us somewhere. It's like it's like, what do you want it to be? You know, it's like, you know, so I, I tell people sometimes just guess. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody else will figure it out after the fact. 
<laughs> well, everybody. Yeah. Well, actually, actually, if any one of us talk to people who know, know us and who have let's let's go ahead and stay on the positive side for us, uh, the three of us and say who have had positive experiences with us. You know, we, you know, and we've all, you know, I could say that about either one of you guys. This is the purpose. This is the business meaning that I've gotten from my relationship with Alan, with, with Patrick. It's like, and that's real, but it's like, it's, but that's not mine. That's, you know, it's, it's like, I, you know, I, you know, I, I have, you know, I have all kinds of meaningful experiences with other people who are, you know, even long dead now, who, who still, as we've talked about, still have a, an honored position on my committee in my head, you know, and it's like, but I don't assume that my version of them has anything to do with what, who they were or what they, how they perceive themselves, yeah. you know, and for somebody to, to, you know, to assume that they know, you know that that they that, that their experience with me is what my experience is. That's not that's not even close to real. I don't think is it. No, 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 not at all. And they look at asking ourselves, what can we do about it? Is right on. I mean, mm -hmm. that is at the heart of this thing, man. It's like, what can we do about it? You know, uh, I even like adding the word want to that because I think so often we think about want as something that's frivolous, but it's like, no, it's like, what do you want to do about it? It's like, let's, you know, what, you know, that's because want is about desire. You know, that's that, what do you, what matters to you? What, what do you care about? Let's go do the, it's like so often because so, so often we get caught up. I know this for a practical thing. We get caught up in our, in our just basic responsibilities that we have in our lives. And it's like, uh, uh, you know, king of procrastination here. It's like procrastination becomes a very dangerous thing when it comes to the bigger things of life. It's one thing that I, you know, I'm slow getting, you know, this done, or you know, I'm, I'm always late getting my taxes in, or whatever that is. But it's another thing when I'm when I'm postponing things that you know that really matter to me and that really can make a difference. I was reacting to what you were saying, Patrick, about somebody else will figure it out. Well, mm -hmm. we visited that in the chapter on no one is coming. <laughs> See, that's right. You know, nobody's going to come to figure it out. But it, it's mm -hmm. what I think is true. Even if you don't know, if you stay the course, eventually that answer is going to be revealed to you through your experiences and through paying attention to them. You see, if if one thing we're learning, I think, as we walk through this, like we talked this last Thursday night in the emotional sobriety uh, uh, open 12 step meeting mm -hmm. is if you stay in close contact with your experience, you're going to learn a lot about yourself. The problem we have in doing that is that we are discouraged from paying attention to our experience. Mm -hmm. Culture yes. doesn't encourage us to do it. Personally, I don't like to feel pain. I'm going to run from pain, mm -hmm. avoid discomfort, avoid feeling stupid or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I don't want to face those things. So I run from it. I create this illusion of the world that I'm living in. Well, when I get committed to walking this other path, I start to make friends with reality rather than treat reality as, as an unwanted guest. See, that, that's, I think, a good way to describe what happened to me, is reality seemed to always be an unwanted guest. It was always interfering with the plans I had, God damn it, you know, or with the right, things with, I wanted. With the version you had in, in my, my, but in you, my head. Well, in your book, it's, it's like uh, the in, in this chapter, uh, 
you you basically you basically come into the idea. I can't remember if you say it exactly this way, but I know there's a section I'm looking at right now. It's called facing the unexpected. I I think what you do is you teach to expect the unexpected because that's a reasonable expectation in life. It is that turns out to be that's right, right. and and that's a problem we have is we do not expect what we what can be expected. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, I, you know, I tell people all the time, think about everybody has a profit in their head. A little, yeah. you know, the, 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 the and you, you know, and, and his friend of mine says it never has any, doesn't ever predict positive shit. It just, it just tells you all the things that can go wrong. But one of the things I help people see is I go like, how, what's your track record of your profit? It's like, you know, how often has your profit been exactly right about what's going to happen? It's like, you know, a, pro, a profit in our head can, can cheat. And here's, here's the way you can do that. You can just say, Something bad is going to happen. It's like, okay, well, yeah, there you go. Now, now, now you're just doing a cold reading and it's a bad one at that. But, but the idea is I know for myself that I have lived in fear and worry and fretting over not general things, but particular things I'm afraid of that I can say 100% of the time have never come true. Yeah. So I've got a prophet who basically I'm, you know, I'm 67 years old, a prophet who's my, by my tally, he's never been right. Now, you know, something else, something else may have happened, but it wasn't that thing that, that was predicted. It's yeah. like he's never been right. And yet I'm still prone if I'm not careful. I'm better, much better these days. But 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 only when I got a hold of this way of thinking about it, I'm still prone when he speaks to lean forward like he's fucking E.F. Hutton. You know, it's, 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 it's like, there's yeah. a reference that young people will miss, but it's, yeah. but, um, but the idea is, you know, so when I want people to go, go, why are you believing this person who has, should have no credibility? You're discussing fear and anxiety. And uh, you say that anxiety is impossible to deal with when you treat it like it is fear. Yeah. Well, because it's an illusion, right? So it's based on what's not happening yet. What we're afraid will happen. And so it's like shadow boxing. You don't really have an opponent. I mean, there's nobody to hit, you know, when you make it real. And that's one of the cognitive behavioral interventions. They say, imagine the worst thing. And now what would you have to do to deal with it? So one intervention they have in cognitive behavioral therapy, you say, all right, it just happened. Your worst fear happened. Now, what the hell are you going to do with it? Mm -hmm. You see, so that's one way you can anticipatory. They call it anticipatory coping. You can cope with it in the future and say, okay, if it's going to happen. But, and I like that. I've used that intervention many times with people and say, all right, well, let's see if we can face it. it would that be the end of the world if that happened? Mm -hmm. Well, no, it would just be the next thing to deal with. Now, this is one of the reasons why, you know, when somebody is given the reality of what's going on, look, you know, you have to do this. You've got this medical problem and you're going to have to do this for treatment. People do whatever is needed. Most people do whatever is needed. I can't say everybody, but most people mm -hmm. do what is needed to mm -hmm. do to take care of that problem. If you have cancer and you're told you've got to go in, you've got your choice between this and this. Once you choose what you're going to follow to it, you're going to show up and do the treatment, whether you're being radiated, going to chemotherapy, getting infusions, whatever the case may be. You deal with the reality because, as Tom said in the beginning, what choice do you have? You either do that or you don't. Now, some people chose not to. My mentor, Dr. Kempler, had prostate cancer. He chose not to address it, I think, and he suffered the consequences of that. But there's no not suffering the consequences. If 
you get a prostate cancer and you treat it, there's going to be certain side effects from the treatment mm -hmm. that happen. You know, you, most men lose the ability to, to have an erection after that. Mm -hmm. You know, you still may have urinary problems in terms of incontinence and stuff like this. So there's all kinds of things that happen, you know, so it's this fantasy that there's some choice out there that is free of a dilemma. I think is part of the the lie we tell ourselves. If I make the right choice, then it's going to be all okay. And there is no right choice in that way. Every choice is going to have a sequence of events associated with it. Some of them may be more to your liking than others. I understand that. So pay attention to that. You know, maybe those that that's the best choice for you. But it's very hard. And we've talked about this once before. When you make your decision based on what you expect the outcome to be, you don't know. You don't have a crystal ball. None of us do. We can plan for the best, you know, to happen. But as they say in the program, you can make plans, but don't plan the results. I mean, right. right. That's, not the chairman of the results committee. I love that. We are not the chairman of the results committee. But, you know, it just occurred to me, too, you know, because I just said that thing about questions earlier about about that mean the meaning of life. And that's a, that's a question we each have to to work on in our life is. But you just talked about uh, something I'd never thought about in terms of my, my fascination with questions is we are we're we are often presented with multiple choice questions. Yeah. And, and, and the idea, I mean, I know no clearer example of that than a, than a, than a medical diagnosis, you know, this treatment, that treatment or no treatment, you know, that, that, uh, it's like, and it, the, the goal there is, you know, of course, what we, you know, what we do initially as just as human beings, is you give me, if I, if you, if you diagnose me with cancer and then you give me my treat my goals, I, or my, my options, I say, None of those. I want. I would rather have you touch my head and heal me, you know. And they go, well, that's not one of the choices. So once you get clear that these are the choices, then you then you investigate what, are, what you know what goes with each one of those choices, and we make the choice. And our integrity is in the fact that we choose it, and we and and then like you said, we sh show up for it. Yep, that's you know? right. That's right. Even even pain. I, I I've often used chemotherapy as an example of that for people like eat, a lot of eating disorder people I work with who have to who work on on very, very uncomfortable relationships with food. It's like it's, right. it's like, you know, it's it's nobody's saying it's pleasant. Nobody's saying it's not extremely painful, but it's like in, and people who've never understood eating disorders may think this is a this is exaggerated, but it's not. It's like it's like, you know, pe people who go to chemotherapy show up chemotherapy, you know, Less so these days, it's getting better. But it's like in the in, in, back in our day, you go knowing you're going to be extremely sick. You're, you're you're getting ready to poison the holy crap out of your whole body. That's right. You know, and we show up because we want we want to be we want to be better. Mm -hmm. And that's and that's psychotherapy is very much the same way. You're volunteering for pain, and but but it's not pain for no purpose. That's right. It's well said, Tom. Very well said. And so, you know, life on life's terms is, is, is going to be some of our greatest challenge. Now, the important thing is, is that, you know, this is building, right? So, you know, if we look at this is one of the things we talk a lot about on how the steps help us achieve emotional sobriety. Well, these two insights are in many ways fashioned in the same way is that as we wake up, as we start to discern, discern our emotional dependency, as we start to now bring greater degree of consciousness to our life, realize no one is coming, taking responsibility, 
we start building a foundation for our life where we can deal with life on life's terms. Before, one of the reasons we didn't deal with life on life's terms, and I say this all the time, it was an adaptation that was based on what was most available to us. And so the illusions we created, we had to create that it was going to be different because we weren't prepared to deal with life on life's terms. And I I want people to hear that is the fact that you are struggling with this just says to you, this stuff wasn't available for you earlier. It is now. Right. And don't beat yourself up over it. It's not something lacking in you. It's just what you've never had a chance to develop yet. And it's so important for people to hear this is that this is this is about now not faulting yourself for who you are, but becoming aware of who you aren't so you can become what you can be. And that's, Say that again. Say that again. Yeah. If you, if you repeat it, that, that's it's great. It's not faulting yourself for who you are. It's just becoming aware of who you're not so you can start to become what you can be. See, that is the quest here for us. And that's what we're really trying to help people see, or I was trying to help people see in the book, you know, the 12 Ooh. Essential Insights for Emotional Sobriety, is that there is, there is an an incredible development that our consciousness can take that can now illuminate possibilities that we could never see before. Right. And that's why the, I, the best, the best that I can do is, is better now than it was in the past. And I don't course, need to hold that past version of myself accountable to what I know now. It's not fair. It, it, our consciousness changes through life. Piaget, you know, who I'm a big fan of really showed us that when he went, this, this was a, a psychologist. He was a philosopher, an artist, several things, but he wanted to understand cognitive development and how we developed. And he started to sit down with kids and he asked questions, just like Tom was saying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, he, yep. he didn't do experiments in the traditional form. It was more of a conversational thing. Hey, what about this or what about that? And um, and he started to show us that at different ages, our consciousness was able to looked at reality different than it was going to look at it later on. Mm-hmm. So early on, we see things very concretely. So there's a story about this four year old who um, was sitting down with his 10 year old brother and um Mom had cooked up a, a, a tray of, of Rice Krispie treats and cut all the squares the same size. And because his brother, Billy, was older, 10, Billy got two of the big squares mm-hmm. and little Johnny got one. Mm-hmm. And when mom brought out the two plates, Johnny protested. This was unfair. Why is my brother and mom tried to rationalize, you know, Billy's was in school and he's got a bigger appetite. He's got a bigger body than yours. And he needs more to satisfy his, 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 you know, his craving for this snack. Well, little Johnny wasn't having it. I got one. He got two. It's unfair. Out of frustration, mom took a knife, mm-hmm. cut Johnny's in two, cut it in half. Solve the problem. Johnny looked up to mom. <laughs> Mommy, thank you. Thanks for doing that. Now, Johnny still had half 
of what his brother had. But in his mind, he now had the same because he had two and his brother had two. I'm going to open a second savings account. But you see the difference, that consciousness at that point, when he got to 10 years old, he would be able to think about the volume of things, not the number, Mm -hmm. right? Not the quantity. He could think about the volume of it. But at this age, it was whether you had one or two was the deciding factor. And if two were bigger than one, no matter how, what the volume was in one. Mm hmm. And, and what, we would say, what we would say to the mom is be grateful for, for now because later it's not going to be this easy. <laughs> well, well that's, that's true. You're not going to be able to pull out a knife. And <laughs> but, you know, look, the point here is that our consciousness, yeah. wherever, wherever we're at, at the, our right. developmental level is going to see things as we are at that time. At that moment. It doesn't mean that you can't see things in a different light. That, that what we're seeing is the only possibility because it's not. Because later on, as you think about it, as Tom was saying, then you're going to understand that volume is the issue here. And that even if you cut that in half, that's not going to satisfy him because he still has only half as much as his brother. And so then the issue will be around that. But that comes later on in our development as our brain matures. And, and well, part, so part of what you're describing, too, is what we're doing being in this process is we are we are consciously we are consciously contributing to our ongoing development. It's like oh, it's we, the, the, uh, the, so much of this stuff happens naturally. We understand that these developmental psychologists have helped us understand that. But the idea is, is there's this uh, I think Robert Robert Ornstein and Paul Ehrlich call a uh, 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 conscious evolution. Robert yeah. Keegan calls it our at any given time, we make what he calls an evolutionary truce with reality. Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah. I've, I've read that. Yes. Evolutionary truce, truce with reality, because what we do is we settle. We can't we 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 make <laughs> congruent what is in front of us based on where we're at at that point mm-hmm. in time. And that becomes and that's very logical for us. See, we mm-hmm. can't say that child was not being logical and rational because the chi- in the child's mind, this is exactly what things were supposed to be like. So when we tell someone, look, your emotional dependency, your lack of differentiation makes you take things personally. Well, before you can see that possibility, everything feels personal. How could they do that to me? You see, that becomes our reality. If I say, Patrick, you're making me angry, I really believe you just made me angry. Well, when we started the show, I said I had a hard stop at an hour. I've got to help someone deal with a very talk about life on life's terms with a very, very crushing, crushing experience this person is having. So, look, Patrick, what are we doing next time? Uh, Next week is Discovering Novel Solutions. And uh, good luck with um, your uh, situation later. Uh, Until next time. Tinge your life, tinge your myth Cultivate your narrative with whomever you're with Then with glass in hand and children on one knee Bring some stories, bring your stories back to me It ain't a crime to be a human Never be ashamed to be yourself Rest assured that whatever you're doing
will entertain me like nobody else. So here's to us, my old friends. Until it's time to drink the wine and break the bread again. With glass in hand and children on one knee. Bring some stories, bring your stories back to me. Back to me.